Here's what the Word of God has to say. But the high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison and taking them out said, Go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates had come, they called the the council together, even the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened up, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed and about, about them as to uh, what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and have attempted to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses. These things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now skip down to verse 40. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their, own, on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer the shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from the house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I want you to consider with me this morning, what are your life's core convictions? Now, what I mean by that term, I'm going to use the word conviction often this morning, is what are those things in your life you believe to be true, unshakably truth? true, so much so that you have built your life upon these truths, and because you believe them to be true, you cannot, you will not move off of them. So you can't be convinced otherwise. They are so fundamental to who you are. And oftentimes, one of the ways we determine what these core convictions of our life are, are what are those things that you would be willing to give up everything you have, your your possessions, your well-being, your livelihood, even your life. What are those, are those core convictions 
Those things, and, and, and we sometimes hear people, These, this is not a hill worth dying for. Well, the question today is, what is this issue? What are the issues in your life, the truths in your life that you really would be willing to die for? Troubled times and crisis moments reveal what are those true core convictions in our lives. One's true character, one's true conviction about things is revealed in moments of crisis, but those moments of crisis don't create the convictions. They reveal what had been produced and created and and matured many, many years and time before. When Dana and I were living in Texas while I was attending seminary, our church experienced a horrific and an evil attack. In the aftermath, as we were all reckoning with the devastation and and thinking through how we would respond, our pastor spoke some words in those moments that have forever been seared into my heart and my mind. He said that in moments of crisis and trouble, the character of of a person that has been developed in more peaceful times is made known. And he used the example of a fruit And he said, when you begin to squeeze an orange, it's too late for that fruit to determine or to decide what kind of fruit it wants to be. It's too late to say, oh, I want to be an orange or an apple. When it's the time of squeezing, what it is will come out. When you squeeze an orange, orange juice always comes out. When you squeeze an apple, apple juice always comes out. And he said to the church, he said, dear friends, we are being squeezed. We are under the pressure of a troubling moment. And who we have been developing as our character and our nature um, up until this moment is being revealed in this moment of our troubles. This principle has always been true. During the reign of the Roman emperor Diocletian, began one of the most severe, deadliest periods of of, uh, persecution in the Christian church. When you think about the historical persecutions that Rome exacted upon Christians, it's in this era. He he ruled from 284 A.D. to to, uh, 305. And in fact, this period is known after his name. It's the Diocletian Persecution. And He gives the name to this period of time of such great persecution for the church. In that period of time, uh, there were some in the church that became known as traditores. Now, it was a Latin term that literally means those who have handed over. And it referred to those particularly, typically those who were in leadership of the church or pastors or priests that under persecution and under threat of, 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 of violence and harm and, and difficulty, they literally handed over the things of the gospel. Oftentimes that meant giving over to Rome their copies of Scripture to be burned. Sometimes it meant handing over to the authorities the, the, the things that they used in the church for worship. But they literally handed over the, the sacred things of the church as a demonstration that they were denying Jesus and identifying themselves with the demands of the secular world. It brought a huge theological crisis for the early church. But dear friends, I have a word for you, and that is that the truth is that there are traditores in every generation, including our own. 
Because when the cost of following Jesus comes to bear, some will choose the comforts of this world over obedience to truth. Our passage this morning gives a testimony of how the apostles responded to the hostilities of a wicked world and teaches us how we are to respond to the world. And I, I listen, even though this is the rather intense context, this is my encouragement to you this morning. I believe, and we'll speak about this later in a moment, I believe the cost of following Jesus is going to become greater on us than it has been in the past. But here is my pastoral plea for you. If you wait until that moment when the choice is before you, you have waited too late. If you're waiting to that moment to decide where you stand. Now in the peaceful time, now in the moment when the pressure is not on, must be the time where you decide what are those core convictions. Do you believe Jesus is indeed the Christ? Do you believe the gospel is worthy for dying for? Do you believe that the lost men and women, boys and girls that live in our community are worth hearing the gospel to such an extent that you're willing to give up life and limb and income for the sake of preaching the name of Jesus? I want to share with you three things out of this passage this morning. Number one, there is a cost to your convictions. And we'll see from this passage that there was a great cost that was willingly paid by the apostles. And all those who follow Jesus must pay a a cost for convictions. And secondly, there's a testimony to our convictions and there is a legacy to our convictions. But let's begin with its cost. We must reckon with the reality that if you are to faithfully preach the gospel of Jesus, then you must understand that preaching the gospel of Jesus is by its very definition offensive to the world. Now, I don't think that anybody this morning woke up and the first thought on your mind this morning is, I want to be the most offensive, odious person I can be today. And I think that's a good thing. By the way, most of us, because of the cultural context of which we live, now some of you are not from the South, I appreciate that, but many of you are, and all of our mamas told us, if you can't say anything nice, then what? Don't say anything at all. And by the way, mama was right for most cases, okay? But in the context of the gospel, you need to understand that to speak the name of Jesus into the context of a lost and dying world, it is offensive. Chapters 4 and 5 of Acts, there's a lot going on here. In chapter 4, the church was proclaiming with power the gospel. They were meeting needs. They were sacrificing for one another. They were, they were, they were practicing generosity. In chapter 4, you had the testimony of Ananias and Sapphira where they lied to the apostles. They wanted to get in on the benefit or the celebration of those who were acting sacrificially for the church, but they wanted to live in selfishness. And they died as a consequence of God in the presence of the church. And I've often thought, man, I'm telling you, if, if people who were living in sin started falling over dead in the middle of church, I think there would be a revival breakout. Amen? 
And that's what was happening in chapters 4 and 5 of Acts. The apostles were performing many signs and wonders. The people were believing in, the, uh, and in Jesus and being saved. The sick and the possessed were being healed. And the power of God was moving mightily. Sick were being healed. Needs were being met. Families were being restored. Hail, marriages were being healed. And men and women were being restored to a right relationship with God. It was an amazing time in the life of the early church. And the church was certainly rejoicing and excited for all that the Lord was doing. And you might think that even those who had not believed on Jesus would at the very least recognize the benefit and goodness of what was happening in the church. I mean, who would be opposed to healing the sick? Even if you didn't love Jesus, even if you didn't believe in the name of Jesus, if your brother who was lame could now walk, you would, you would think that would be something to celebrate. Or those who had been possessed or, or broken in some way, they'd been healed, you would think that would be something worthy of rejoicing in. But, but Luke reports in, in verse 17 that the high priest and his fellow Sadducees were, and the words he used, were filled with jealousy. Friends, listen to me carefully. When God moves, it is offensive to the world. It reveals, when God moves, it reveals his power and the weakness of the world. When God moves, it sets free those who have been enslaved to the idols of this world and, and to live free to the righteousness of God. It is a rejection of the things of this world and a reception of the glories of God. When God moves, it testifies to God's truth and exposes the lies of the world. And the world hates it. Just consider how infuriating the words of Peter must have been in verses 30 and 32. Look with me in your Bibles, if you will. Peter gives an answer to why they're still preaching. And he says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging on the cross. Now, I'm, let's just be honest. That was not well received by those who heard it. He calls them out. The Sadducees opposed and killed Jesus, but God raised him up victorious over the grave. The church now proclaims the resurrected Jesus, and the Sadducees are still desperately trying to silence the gospel. But friends, let's be very clear this morning. If you faithfully preach Jesus, listen to me. If you faithfully preach Jesus, you must be willing to speak truth even when it is offensive to those who hear. I don't like being offensive. I don't relish being offensive. But dear friends, our disdain for being offensive cannot be a limiting factor. You just need to build into the equation the gospel is offensive to those who hate truth. And if you are to faithfully preach Jesus, you must be willing to speak offensive things in season and out of season. But notice too, it's not just that the world is offended by the truth. The world is actively opposing the word of God. So much is made of tolerance and inclusivity in our modern context. When spoken by, by those of the world, uh, they're typically um, more hollow plat platitudes of let's just kind of all get along. But you need to understand that the world is happy to tolerate things as long as they don't threaten its power or shine light in its dark places. Somebody say amen. 
The world is happy to tolerate almost anything as long as it doesn't confront or challenge its power or shine light in its dark places. And dear friends, the gospel by its very nature declares God reigns and man does not. And it produces the light of truth that exposes all forms of darkness and wickedness. And you need to understand that when the gospel begins to do its work, it will absolutely be opposed by the world. Presently, we are rapidly approaching a collision between historical religious liberties that we have enjoyed in this nation since our founding and the newly invented rights of the sexual revolution. Now, friends, the moral revolutionaries have made very clear that religious liberties must be curtailed and give way to make room for the new worldly morality. There's a man by the name of Theo Hobson. He's a British academic. and He's given a very helpful definition, I think, to a moral revolution. He said it this way. He said, um, a moral revolution has these parts. He says, that which is repudiated must be celebrated. That which is celebrated must be repudiated. And then lastly, and those who will not celebrate must themselves be repudiated. The first impulse of the high priest was to imprison the apostles, throw them in jail. But this only gave opportunity for God to demonstrate his power. Verse 18, they get thrown in jail. Verse 19, God sends an angel to set them free. In verse 33, their impulse when they hear Peter give his testimony is no longer they don't want to throw him in jail. In verse 33, they want to kill Peter. Peter and the apostles understood well that the preaching of Jesus was not a neutral activity. Preaching Jesus and proclaiming the gospel has been and will be actively opposed by the world until Jesus comes. Listen to me carefully, friends. We're in a context of a battle, and it won't be played nice. Prison and murder will be part of it, ruining your your career and taking your away, your ability to earn a living will be part of it calling you to abandon and forsake your core conviction of what is true will be absolutely at the center of it because the world is offended by truth and the world will actively oppose truth. But I want you to see there is an encouraging word here, and that is that when you preach Jesus, it is always provided for by God. Now, it's important not to miss the power out of which Peter and the apostles are preaching All this was being done to advance the gospel, um, not because of the skills and and strength of the uh, the apostles uh, themselves. So what was being done was to advance the gospel. They were preaching the gospel, not to preaching themselves. They were preaching the kingdom of God, not the the kingdom of uh, Peter and the apostles. The gospel witness of the church was provided for and empowered by God. He was the one. God was the one bringing the lost to salvation. God was the one healing the sick. God was the one restoring lives. 
Friends, the testimony to the power of God to provide for the witness of the church is found all the way out through Scripture. But I want you to see in verse 18 and 19 what is happening here. So in in, in verse 18 and 19, Peter and the apostles have been thrown in jail. In verse 18, it says, they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. Verse 19 begins with an important word, but... But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go your way, stand and speak uh, to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. So the Sadducees exercised their temporal authority. It was their right. It was their privilege. It was their ability to imprison Peter and the apostles. But look carefully, friends. The locks the walls, the guards, and all the things associated with imprisoning these men had no power or barrier to the power of God. Oh, verse 18 says they were thrown in jail, but verse 19 says, but God had another idea altogether and came and released them from prison, opened the doors, brought them out, and commissioned them to go and keep doing what they had been doing. Go back to the temple and preach and teach the name of Jesus. Notice God was releasing them from prison not for their comfort's sake. In fact, later in the passage, we see God allows, and according to his sovereign grace, to allow these men to be flogged. So the issue here is not that they would sleep better at night. God released them from prison not for their comfort's sake. God released them from prison because no power of man can thwart the purpose or the will of God. You can lock an apostle up for preaching the gospel, but you cannot lock the gospel up from being preached. Somebody say amen. He opened the doors, put them out, and said, go back to it, and they did. God's will was that the whole message of life, that is the gospel message, would be made known. And friends, I am here to tell you today that there is no prison that will be able to hold back the will of God. When you answer and obey the Lord, he will provide for his will to be fulfilled. That does not mean you'll you'll live in comfort and peace, but it means that God provides for his will and his power and his ability. And we begin with this idea that there's a cost to conviction, but I want you to see that there is a testimony to our conviction as well. We begin with this idea of being compelled to obey God. The Sadducees had made it very clear that they did not want the gospel preached. So in chapter 4, verse 18, it says, And they summoned them and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Then in our passage, we read in verse 27 that the high priest questioned them, saying, we we gave you strict orders uh, not to continue preaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In other words, you're blaming us for, for, for killing Jesus. Verse 29 says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. And even at the end of the passage in verse 40, the, again, the, the, the Sadducees the, uh, uh, called the apostles in. They flogged them. That means they beat them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. Let's be honest. There's nothing enjoyable about any of that. There's nothing enjoyable about being hauled in in front of uh, authorities and commanded to stop doing what you're doing. 
And there's no enjoyment or pleasure in being thrown into prison. And there's no enjoyment in being flogged. Listen, you need to understand, we don't have time for this, but the prisons of that day were, were not concerned with the comfort and well-being of the prisoners. They were only concerned with the confinement of the prisoners. It was a horrible place to be. Being beaten or flogged was oftentimes done just to the edge of taking your life. When we read at the end of this passage how they're rejoicing, you need to understand they're rejoicing with bruises and cuts and lacerations on their bodies. It had been made very, very clear that the will and wish of the religious leaders was that they stop preaching the name of Jesus. I think it's not only that no one uh, enjoys being opposed by government leaders, but I think it also can be said that most desire to live peaceably among their community and rulers. And I think that is rightly so. You ought to be a good neighbor to your neighbors. They ought to be thankful they live next to you. Our, 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 uh, our civil authorities ought to, ought to look at the church and the Christians in our community and go, they are good citizens and, and are a blessing to be here. But friends, the apostles had also made it clear that their allegiance was to the greater authority of God over the Sadducees or even Rome. And if they were being asked to choose whether or not they would obey God or Rome or the Sadducees, they said, we can't help but obey God. In chapter 4, Peter and John said it this way, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. In our passage in verse 29, Peter says, we must obey God rather than man. And here it is, friends. Listen to me carefully. This is the testimony of true conviction. You cannot stop. You must obey. You need to be asking yourself right now, what are those true convictions in my life? Do you really believe Jesus is the Christ? Because if you do, then these two things are true about you. You cannot stop proclaiming it, and you must obey his will. Peter, I don't think, was arrogantly rebelling against the authorities of his day. I think Peter is humbly acknowledging that he is compelled to obey because of the resurrection and the hope of the gospel. You see, convictions are proved in conflict and convictions are confirmed in opposition. When you are placed in those places where you say you must do something contrary to your conviction and you say, I wish I could, but I cannot. I must obey God. That is the testimony of what is a true life conviction in your life. You're compelled to obey and for the apostles and for those who follow Jesus, notice too that they are focused primarily, singularly, on pleasing God. I really do not think that the, the power and motivation behind these moments was hatred or hostility toward religious leaders. I don't think what is the power and motivation behind what, what Peter and the apostles are doing is on a political agenda. I don't even think they, they had an, a desire to agitate or frustrate. I don't think their heart's desire was to be rebellious against the authorities of their day. I believe what motivated Peter and the apostles was over everything else, obeying and pleasing God. In chapter 4, after being released from prison, they gathered with the church in worship 
praying and proclaiming the word. In chapter 5, after being released from the first time, they go right back to preaching. And after being released the second time, they rejoice in their suffering, then return to preaching and teaching again. You see, what was motivating, driving them was they wanted to please God with everything they had, to obey his commands, to proclaim his gospel, to bring the lost to salvation. Let's be very clear on this point. You can please the world, or you can please God, but you cannot do both. You can please the world, or you can please God, but you cannot do both. For Peter and the apostles, and I believe for all those who follow Jesus, you must decide, I'm going to please the Lord. Now, there's a legacy I want you to see here as well, the legacy of conviction. What I mean by this is there's a testimony that lasts past just the moment of intensity that gives credence and authority and an undergirding to the moments of crisis. And there's two things I want you to see here about the legacy of conviction. The first is the, there's an attitude of joy. There's an attitude of joy. Yes, that is, the, that is the right word to use here. There is an attitude of joy. If you look at the very end of the chapter in verse 42, excuse me, in verse 41, so they went their way from the presence of the council. Now keep in mind, as they leave, on their bodies are bruises, lacerations, cuts. They are painful for having spent uh, time in prison. They've been mistreated. Their physical bodies are sore and hurting. But what does it say what they were doing? Verse 41, so they went their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name, for the name of Jesus. They had an attitude of joy. The religious leaders had intended to kill Peter and the apostles. But one of, a, one of the Pharisees in the room gave them some wise counsel. He said to them in verse 38, he said, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if, it is this, for, if it, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. That's some wise counsel. And so instead of killing the men... The Bible tells us that they flogged them and then they ordered them again. Same thing they had ordered before. We're going to let you loose, but you're not to speak another moment about the name of Jesus. Flogging is found throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. There's an interesting thing in the law, in the, in the first five books of the Bible in Deuteronomy, it gives a, a restriction to flogging to just 40 lashes. There's some, several reasons to that, but part of that is anything beyond that would become quite dangerous to your continuing to live. These men had been unfairly treated. They had been unjustly thrown in prison. They had been berated and threatened. They had been beaten. They were likely sore, bruised, and bleeding from the ordeal. Now, just put yourself in that position. 
I can see very clearly how there'd be opportunity to be angry. Offended. How dare they treat me this way? Oh, I can see the motivation to get on Facebook and Twitter and make a case for how horrible the Sadducees are. To gather up a movement, try to vote them out of office or something like that. You can't do that with Sadducees, but if you could. What does the Bible say how they responded to this horrible treatment? They rejoiced. Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 4, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but to glory God in this name. They were not angry. They were not bitter. They were not frustrated. They were not mad. They were not vindictive, and they were not ashamed. They were filled with joy. They were joy-filled because in obedience to Jesus, they had found themselves counted worthy to identify with Jesus in his suffering. When your rights, when your dignity and worth are offended, it produces anger, bitterness, and shame. But when obedience to Jesus allows you to join in his suffering, it brings joy to your heart that you have been able to walk closer, more intimately with Jesus. Dear friends, listen to me. You've got a choice in the next few years to come. You can become bitter, angry, frustrated. You can become vindictive. And you can do all that you need to do to, 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 to work against, to be a a, 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 a difficult thing, but I'm telling you, friends, the right attitude, the better attitude, is to have an attitude of joy. Suffer beatings, imprisonments. But if you're suffering because you're preaching the name of Jesus, let it produce an attitude of joy in your life. And there's one other thing, and this is important, so listen to me carefully. When we think about the legacy of conviction, there was all the way through this a continuation of ministry. In verse 42, I think, is a key verse in its simplicity of what it says. Look back with me in verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, here's the key phrase to me. They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. True convictions do not wane or fall away with time or circumstances. If it is a core conviction of truth in your life today, it'll be a core conviction of truth in your life tomorrow. True convictions remain consistent over time. The great legacy of conviction is not found in the heat of the moment, but in the consistency over time. The New American, the New American Standard Bible translates verse 42 as they kept right on. The ESV renders it, they did not cease teaching if you have an NIV 84, it says they never stopped teaching. 
The King James said they ceased not to teach. Dear friends, that must be the testimony of the church. That must be the testimony of your life. In season and out of season, preach Jesus. Amen? When it is well received and when it is rejected, preach Jesus. When crowds come and celebrate and when no one will give you an ear, preach Jesus. When it costs you almost nothing and if it costs you everything, preach Jesus. Keep on preaching Jesus. Keep right on preaching Jesus. Seetheth not to preach Jesus. Never stop preaching Jesus until the last breath exits out your lungs. I believe that days are coming where all of us will be confronted with choosing to preach Jesus or surrendering to the world's demands to be silent. The Sadducees and Pharisees tried to kill Jesus and silence the gospel. Rome used all its might to eradicate the church. In our modern era, Karl Marx and those who followed his teaching attempted to expunge from the world any reference to Jesus and people of faith. From the first century to our day, Christians have found themselves hated by the world. Throughout the centuries, rulers and nations have risen that made it their objective to rid the world of the followers of Christ and silence the preaching of Jesus. And in their wake, they have brought terrible suffering and hardships on Christians. And there is no doubt, there's no doubt in my mind that at, at, mo at such moments when such worldly powers were at their height, it must have seen as though the forces opposing Jesus would be victorious. But you have to ask the question, where are the Sadducees today? Where is Rome? today? Where are Marx and Lenin and Stalin? Where is Mao Zedong or Ho Chi Minh? Where are they today? You know where they are? Their bones are in their graves. Nations rise and nations fall. Leaders come to power and leaders lose power and all succumb to death and demise and are no more except for our God, who was and is and is to come. Come on. Jesus was crucified, but he didn't stay in the grave. Dear friends, it is not so with those who follow Jesus. You may be hated and opposed by the world, but you are empowered by God. You are empowered by God who created all things and who stands. You are empowered by God who is greater than any power of man. The gospel witness and the faithful church will be preserved in every generation and in every situation, not for our comfort, or our pleasure, but because of the perfect will of God. So here it is. Choose this day. Here it is. 
Is it your core conviction to preach Jesus the Christ? Do you believe that he alone is the one who brings sinners to salvation and those dead in sin to life in Christ? Is it your core conviction to preach Jesus? If it is, then do it. Preach Jesus in season and out of season. Preach Jesus when the gospel is well received and when it, is, when it sets the world in a rage. Preach Jesus as a core conviction and let it be said of you, you cannot help. You cannot help. But preach Jesus.